You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Good morning once again, Redemption Church. Good to see you all. I, ho- I hope you're feeling uh, a little bit like what I felt this morning, what I uh, talked to a number of you, and it seems like a number of you felt this morning, which is just a little sigh of relief. As you woke up this morning, whatever time you ended up waking up this morning, um, maybe your kids woke you up at an earlier time than you wish, maybe you got to sleep in a little bit, maybe you jumped in and you just had a little bit more space in your morning than you would have had before. Um, So my Sunday routine is to get up and do a little bit of final sermon prepping, um, to pray, to read, to, to do a little bit of writing, and then to go and get some kolaches for the family before I head up to the church. And normally this is a very like slow and quiet, like the sun is rising, there's no one out because it's Sunday morning. Uh, But this morning was very different and I pull up to Kalachi factory and I'm expecting it to be this quiet and it's just me and the shop guys and I'm like, what's up, it's me again. And instead I like walk up at 6.58, they open at seven and I'm like, oh, there's a human here. And I turn around the corner and they're like, oh, there's a line of humans here. And like all of y'all woke up early with me and you're ruining my Sunday now because here we are and now there's a mob standing out in front of the Kalachi factory. And the rest of the time, uh, my Kalachi factory experience was absolutely ruined because you go in and there was just like this hectic busyness and the staff was super stressed out because they went from having zero customers to like 15 customers all at once. And it just felt like a pretty appropriate metaphor for our lives. So I, I also used to work at Starbucks. So we lived in Baltimore a while back. My wife, when we were dating, had some significant like hip surgeries and had to like live there for a couple of months. And so I moved there much to the chagrin of my family. Like, wait, you're doing what? You're moving where? With who? Um, anyways, that's another conversation. But part of like is like, I don't want to just be a bump on a log and just sitting there in her hospital room uh, with like contributing nothing for weeks and weeks and weeks. And so I went and got a job at a local Starbucks. And it was in the middle of Baltimore, downtown, this little corner Starbucks where I learned what it meant to sort of be a barista. And I loved it there. It was so great. It was people who were walking to work and riding their bikes to work. And it was just the the ambiance was slow and present, even in a commercial, busy coffee place. When when Gabby's surgery was over and we came back to Houston, um, I transferred my employment from that Starbucks to a Starbucks across from Willowbrook Mall. And it was a very, very different experience. And I ended up, after like three or four weeks, I ended up quitting because it was so tense because the difference was they had a drive-through. 
there was a, a bit of relationality that was taken out of the equation that completely changed the experience. It was the same workflow, the same like expectations of employees, the, the same coffee, the same drinks, the same company, like everything was the same. The only thing that changed was now there's a drive-through. It's easy, quick access. And just that small change made it turn a corner towards, I don't know, it was more about the product and less about the people. And it was give me my coffee and there was raging and there were minivans and it was a thing. But I say all of that to, to invite us into a little bit of what I hope this morning brought to some of us. Because I think, pretty sure, that you're too busy. <laughs> I think, and I'm pretty sure, that we are all simply too busy. And, and the question that I want to ask us, and I'll, I can't take credit for this question, but it's the question I want us to park and sit in and kind of reflect on throughout this week is, is what you're doing getting you what you want? Is the life you're living week in and week out, when you get out of bed and do whatever it is you do until you go to bed, is that giving you what you want? Which, if you are philosophical, you're asking the question, well, wait, what do I want? Which is the right question. So there is a, a fantastic book um, that I did not write the name of down right now. And now that you're all looking at me and I don't remember the name, I won't remember it. But it's, it's great. It's written by the religion department at Yale. And it is basically about like what, what is worth wanting. And it's been such a great like practice for me to like read this and consider some of the questions that they're asking in it. And then also, uh, it's like been so great that I'm like, I think we should do a book club on this in the spring, and so we'll probably do that. So if you're interested in this conversation that we're going to have today, there will be more that you can jump into down the road. But the question that they're asking there is, wait, what, what kind of life do you even want to live? Who do you want to be? And one of the authors, a theologian named Miroslav Volf, says that careful reflection about how, or this is inviting us into careful reflection about how we and the world ought to actually be versus just accepting ourselves and the world as it is. And so the layers of questions that they invite us into are first, the, the top layer is like our habits. What is it that we're actually doing? What are we spending our time and energy and focus and money on? But then the next layer is, is what I'm doing getting me what I want? Right, so this is something that uh, in, the, in the tech world, this is a very popular and famous question. Are the inputs that you're putting into the program giving you the outputs that you want? If they're not, then you need to change the inputs so that it will give you different outputs. But there are some questions underneath the questions. What do I really want? Right, because we can actually hone in and dial in like doing the right things to get the right results. But then as so many people have experienced, they have climbed the ladder and climbed the ladder and then they get to the top and they realize that the ladder is leaning on the wrong wall. And they get to a point in their life where they're like, oh, this isn't actually what I wanted at all. So then like the final question at the bottom is, hey, wait, what is it that's actually worth wanting? Which is another way of saying, what is a good life? 
What does it mean to be a flourishing human being in my context and in my world and in my situation? And so we're going to slow down a little bit this morning and ask those sorts of questions. Because we lead incredibly busy lives in an incredibly busy world. And I want to ask us, is our busyness getting us the type of human flourishing that we want? So we've somehow come to believe that our worth, our value, our purpose, our meaning, our significance as human beings is in what we produce to the point that we've now twisted that into if I can be busier, then I'm now somehow more worthwhile. And even in like some of the toxic hustle culture that we see out there that like right on Gen Z, you guys have been resisting really well with some of the, like your quiet quitting and all the weird stuff that y'all do and you're bringing back 90s stuff, which I actually love, but also I'm like, really? Is that okay? Cool, cool, cool. Where was I going with that? <laughs> oh yeah, so we, we've tied our worth and value to our busyness and this hustle culture has taught us that, hey, if you're not busy, then you're somehow less valuable. And so that busyness has become like this weird humble brag. Like how important you are is based on how busy you are. And the busier you are, then well, clearly the more important uh, you are as a human being. I wonder how many of you this week got to enjoy a little bit of uh, Halloween, right? So if, uh, if you're like anti-Halloween, then... Uh, Earmuffs, okay? <laughs> so this last week was a weird week for us, schedule-wise, family-wise. Um, in the middle of that was Halloween. But one of the things that, so Zoe goes to uh, St. Constantine's school, and they do, like, random holidays, which is annoying as a parent because you're, like, paying them to, like, take your kid and take care of them. And then they're like, oh, yeah, Monday and Tuesday, it's Halloween, no school. I'm like, wait, What? Excuse me. So now I've got to figure out, like, what do I do with a three-year-old on Monday and Tuesday? And I've got all this stuff to do. And we've got member stuff coming up. And we've got a big year meeting coming up. And I've got budget stuff. I've just got too much to do. And now I've got this three-year-old. And Halloween is coming. And what am I going to do? And so I just was like, okay, we're going to lean into this. And so Monday and Tuesday, we spent Monday and Tuesday trying to make it the best Halloween-oriented Monday and Tuesday of my three-year-old's life. And you know what I found? It was actually incredible incredibly delightful and incredibly refreshing and incredibly good for my soul. And my daughter had a blast. I could have just as easily turned Bluey on, sat her on the couch, sat at my laptop and crunched away at stuff that was going to be there regardless of whether I did it then or later. And instead, we decided as a family to like carve pumpkins and go on walks and play in the park. And on Halloween day, I took Zoe to the zoo, which is one of our like, I guess, Halloween traditions because we did it last year. And y'all, Halloween, like secret, Houston secret, Halloween on October 31st, the zoo is empty. Like we walked in and like 30 minutes in, we found a zookeeper and the, the guy goes, you, you literally have the place to yourself. There is nobody else here. It was amazing. And it was slow. It was peaceful. It was restful. I wasn't checking my phone every five seconds. And I wasn't stressed out about all the stuff that was just waiting for me when I was done. I was able to be present with my little girl. I was able to be present with my wife. And we got to enjoy the time together. And in hindsight, when I look back, I don't know, on my deathbed, I might remember those two days. 
And if I had spent them differently, I guarantee you that I would not have. I want us to be really, really, really careful with our busyness because our busyness can consume us. Okay, last anecdote about our busyness. I think I'm uh, beating a dead horse here, but we'll continue beating it. (laughs) Here's how our Halloween ended. We put our daughter to bed and we sat on the porch with some of our neighbors and all the neighborhood kids came around and they came to our house and said please and thank you and took candy from us. And we got you to sit and enjoy one another in a way that I was like, wait, we could literally do this as a society like every week. And it was so good. One of our hub groups sat out on the porch here at the church on Tuesday night and we're just handing out candy and getting to enjoy like the neighbors. How novel, what an idea. I don't know where this quote comes from. It's one of those cliches that is out there that you put on a Hallmark card. But in the context of this conversation, it feels incredibly potent. How we spend our days is how we spend our lives. Who is it that God is inviting you to be? And what is it that you need to be doing to actually live into that? Miroslav Volf in their book on The Good Life says that the answer to these questions, our answers to these questions, right, despite what we might put on paper and say that we want the answers to those questions to be, our answers are actually being played out in our real lives so that everything we do, everything we say, and everything we uh, think shows evidence of our answer to the question of what a good life is. And he goes on to say that we live these answers to these deep questions of life even if we couldn't give those same answers if we were asked point blank, hey, why do you do this? Where you're living them out. And they're scary questions. And I think maybe the reason our lives are so crammed full of stuff is because we're afraid of what would happen if we slowed down. For a lot of us, the quiet and the stillness is like our worst enemy. Feels like a good time to quote Frederick Nietzsche. (laughs) He says that we labor, this was written like what, a hundred and something years ago. We labor at our daily work more ardently and thoughtlessly than is necessary to sustain our life because it is even more necessary not to have the leisure to stop and think. Haste is universal because everyone is running from themselves. So part of our busyness is in trying to find ourselves, and part of our business is in perhaps trying to run from ourselves. So the next question I want us to ask is, wait, what are we doing? Why are we so busy? What is the underlying, like, if we're looking at, hey, we're busy people, and we're looking at the question of, like, what are we actually spending our time doing, um, I think there are some important things to draw out this morning. So let's listen to Jesus. So Luke records this story of these two women that um, Jesus has an encounter with. And you've probably heard this story if you've been around church. We're going to put a little bit of a different spin on it this morning, um, because I think We maybe have misheard it in some weird ways. It's not crazy different than what you've heard, but uh, there's some slight tweaks. 
So Luke chapter 10, and the reason we chose that, we're using the NRSV updated edition this morning because they're going to translate a couple of verses in a specific way. So if you've got a Bible, you want to pull it out, you can follow along in the translation of your choice. You can use your phone. No judgment except for God. It'll be fine. So Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Now as they went on their way, they being like this group of disciples who were following Jesus, as they went on their way... Jesus entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him. She invites him into her home in an act of hospitality. She invites her into into her home. And she had a sister named Mary who sat at Jesus' feet and listened to what he was saying. Who sat at Jesus' feet and listened to what he was saying. So this phrase being at Jesus' feet, specifically sitting at Jesus' feet, is used all throughout, all throughout Luke to show, one, worship of Jesus, but then also, like, a commitment to follow Jesus. The last time we've seen it in Luke, it was the guy who was possessed by legion. Y'all have heard this story, right? There's this dude who's, like, he's been chained up, but no chains can hold him. He's ripping his chains off and ripping his clothes off, and he's an incredibly violent, dehumanized person who's living out in the desert among graves, Jesus encounters this guy, and he's like, hey, I want to know demons inside of there. What's y'all's name? They're like, we're legion. It's like, whoa, that's crazy. And then they all come out, and they go into the pigs, and they run away. And then the guy, like the crowd comes and finds Jesus, and there he is with the guy, and the guy is calmly, peacefully, restoratively sitting at Jesus' feet. And it's such this drastic picture like the violence being done to the man, the perpetual chaos that the man was in, and then this calm, serene peace. And so this is language of apprenticeship. It's language of worship. It's also language of like reorientation. It's language of communion. So something that Mary is doing here, uh, Luke is drawing out. Like she's not just like, oh, that's interesting information. This is neat. Uh, This is a fantastic Bible study. Like there's something more going on here. Verse 40 But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. Martha was distracted by her many tasks. And so she came to Jesus and she asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. Verse 41. Now this is where, uh, if you've got a different translation, it might read a little bit differently. We'll talk about that for a second. Verse 41, but the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and distracted by many things, but few things are needed, indeed only one. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. So if you have, uh, I don't know, if you've got an ESV Bible in front of you, verse 42 does not say, but few things are needed, indeed only one. It says, only one thing is necessary, right? So there is what's called a textual variant here. Now, I won't go super deep into this. We're going to do a class in the spring on like, hey, what the heck do we do with the Bible? And we will have a long conversation about this idea. But the way that we have our English translation of the scriptures is there are thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament. And we take all those thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament, we put them together, and we say, okay, what do they all say? How do they compare and contrast? And then we try to get down to like, hey, what is the, like, What is this text originally saying? Because there's discrepancies in the thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament. Just like if I had all of you write down this verse among the, what, 
60 or 75 people in here, there would be discrepancies in what you each wrote down on a piece of paper. Maybe you forgot a comma. Maybe you had a lowercase here. Maybe you put Lord instead of Jesus, right? That sort of thing. And so here, there's like rules to how they decide, wait, so what do we do with the discrepancies? And so usually what they would say is people tend to add stuff versus taking stuff away. And so we usually prefer shorter readings to longer readings. And and usually we prefer to smooth things out, right? So if I'm a scribe and I'm copying the New Testament and I get to something that's like really weird, I'm like, I don't know what to do with that. I might want to translate it in a way that that could then like smooth that out a little bit. So we, we prefer the harder reading to the easier reading. You tracking with me? Right, so the, the, we stack the deck to try and figure out, like, wait, what seems historically most authentic to what was first written down? All right, that's as far down that rabbit hole I'm, as I'm going to go. For this verse, some are saying, no, no, the shorter reading is preferred because, right, that's the rule. But some are saying, no, 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 wait, hold on. The longer reading is actually the harder reading. And the reason that the... The, the reason that we have for it being shortened was the monastic movement in the third and fourth century. And so that as they're interpreting this text, what they're saying is, well, what we really need to be important is spiritual stuff and not like worrying about like material stuff. And so they would emphasize the importance of sitting at Jesus's feet and learning from Jesus and praying with Jesus and emphasizing the contemplative life versus the life of going out and actually doing justice and taking care of the poor. Right, so they had a, an actual contextual reason to say, ah, I think maybe it says this instead of that, right? Now, here's why this matters. Okay, so if you were gone, come back. Here we go. Welcome. All right. What this does is it turns this from a conversation about doing like good things in the world versus praying into a conversation about what type of life you're living. Because what Jesus is saying here is, few things are needed, Martha. You're doing too much. I appreciate that you're serving. That's good. You should serve. I appreciate that you're being hospitable. That's great. You should be hospitable. I don't need a friggin' feast. I need you to sit down and let's eat a sandwich together. Right? So it is is the complication that Martha is bringing to the table that is the problem. It is the indulgence. It is the excess. You smell what we're stepping in here. That Jesus is saying, hold on, whoa, 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 whoa. Can we simplify this a little bit? Can we talk about what actually really matters? Hey, Martha, I don't need a feast. And guess what? You don't need a feast either. Life is actually really, really, really simple. There are only a few things that you need. In fact, there's only one. And our whole fall and really our whole year has been about this one thing that we all need, which is communion. It is to love and to be loved. To be in relationship with God and with our neighbor. And so this story that is about excess, excessive anxiety, excessive wealth, excessive control, excessive celebration, excessive like what will my neighbors think as I host this person, I ask, what is Jesus asking of us in this story? And, the, and the, the phrase that came to my mind is, I think he's looking at us as Americans living in 2023, and he's saying, when will enough be enough for you? When will you finally arrive at having enough that you can stop and actually enter into communion? 
when does the rat race end? Is life really all about accumulating as much as you can until you die? Is life really about climbing the corporate ladder to the highest points of power until you die? Is life really about uh, fill in whatever blank you think? And when will enough be enough? Which brings us back to our question. What is it that we're so busy doing? Now, I want to be really clear here. Um, We have to do something, right? So this is not an instance of, hey, you've got 24 hours in the day, and you're spending 23 hours instead of 22. Like, no, you've got to spend your time doing something, whether it's staring at a wall or driving to work or... So the, the problem is not, hey, we're doing stuff. I think, I suggest... The problem is maybe we don't understand why we're doing stuff. So one of the things I would used to, as a high school teacher, I would challenge my young, <laughs> malleable students over is this question of, hey, what do you want to do with your life? And they would answer, you know, I want to be an engineer. Why? So I can make a lot of money. You hate math. This might be a terrible idea. I don't know about this. Yeah, but look how much engineers make. Like, cool, okay, you might be miserable and rich. We've never seen that story play out ever. Right, but like the whole system is set up in this way that you go into like this system that is going to train you how to like pass tests and do really well on them and excel at them so that you can then get into a a good uh, higher education program that can give you a piece of paper that can get you qualified for a certain level of job, which is really there for most of us to give us something back. Now, I know there's a lot of you that are like medical residents and in the justice system, there's a lot of you that are doing really good work, and you're like, dude, what the heck? But for a lot of us, we were born in a system that taught us stuff is what really matters, and you need to orient your life around getting as much stuff as you can and leaving as much stuff for your kids, and that is the definition of a good life, and Jesus is saying no. No. And it's, it's gotten to the point where we will leave each other. We will leave deep communion. We will leave relationships to get more square footage out in <laughs> filtering, 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 <laughs> way far out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right, and there's nothing wrong with living in Katy, Texas. <laughs> I used to live in Katy, Texas. Um, I left Katy, Texas for a lot of reasons. But even I struggle with a very real, actual draw of, I could get this much house for this much mortgage there instead of here. And that's actually really appealing. And I don't know, we got another kid on the way. Maybe a little space makes more sense. And you know, it's a little bit of a drive, but how much, you know, who's really counting? An hour this way, an hour that way, no big deal. And we miss that what's taken from us is being able to sit out on October 31st with our next door neighbors and actually know them and enjoy them and hear their stories, and build life together with them, or our family members, or our hub group, or our church. Right, and that's a small example. Please don't, this is Houston, this is a commuter city, so I feel like I live, like I commute like two hours every day, okay? So <laughs> there is no judgment here, but just asking the question of, wait, why is it that actually I want that instead of this? And is that really actually what I want? And then once I get it, am I going to be like, man, I'm super lonely. I have no community. I have no connection. I just have this empty house. 
So Jesus has this line later in Luke where he says, hey, look, you can't serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and mammon. And usually that's, that's often translated as you cannot serve God and money. But, but mammon, like the, the Greek translation of it is mammon, which is like an Aramaic word. And so this, right, what I'm saying is when they're bringing this into Greek, they keep it Aramaic, which is weird. Right, so this is them intentionally saying, no, no, this is like a name. This is something. They could have just as easily used the word for money there, and they don't. And so the, the idea here that the early church grabs a hold of is that mammon is this power, this principality, this, uh, this thing that's at work in the world that is trying to get people to serve it instead of to serve God. We would call it something like the American dream. Or I will sacrifice my family, I will sacrifice my communion, I will sacrifice my community in order to get a raise or to get a promotion or to get whatever. But the thing is, mammon is not concerned about you and your flourishing. If mammon is attached to prince of the power of the air, if mammon is attached to the lion who is roaming around the earth seeking whom he may devour, if mammon is attached to the prince of deceit and lies and evil, then mammon's goal is to subtly and deceitfully, slowly consume and dehumanize you. It's to destroy you. Not to serve you. Not to lead you into flourishing. And I wonder at what point in our rat race, real question here, at what point in our rat race, where does communion fit on our priority list? Where does, hey, how do we carve out time to spend with God fit on our list of priorities? Where do we find time to spend with one another? Where does that fall on our list of things that we have to do? Because to be clear, it is a choice. I love y'all. I really do. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> um, this sermon is as much for me as it is for y'all. Miroslav, Miroslav Wolf goes on to say in his book, One Great Lie of the 21st Century, is that the effectiveness question is the most profound question that we can ask. While the truth is closer to this, these days, the effectiveness question is the most profound question many of us know how to answer. In other words, what he's saying is this. If we are measuring our life by what we're getting out of it in terms of money or stuff, perhaps we should ask ourselves, is that really what we want? So I have a, a friend of mine who might be watching right now. They watch from... I Forgive me, I'm sorry, you're out there somewhere. Yeah, forgive me if uh, I'm butchering this. Somewhere around Portland. Um, they are a evolutionary biologist, have their like uh, graduate degree in evolutionary biology. And uh, like an expert in mushrooms, which is really weird because we had mushrooms growing up out of our carpet in the hallway. And I'm like, you want to come look at these? Anyways, another conversation. <laughs> And they are currently working, I was, I was talking to them a while back, they're currently working at a co-op that makes like coffee and does like 
like does uh, pickling, like jarring of different stuff. And one of the things that they get to do is, is figure out like the science behind this process of jarring things and gets to explore with a variety of different ways of doing this. So you can imagine if, if your child has a graduate degree in evolutionary biology and they're working at a coffee shop, how you might feel about that in the United States of America in 2023 when what we are taught and told is that the highest, the, the greatest thing we can do with our life is go and get a bunch of stuff. And so I'm talking to this person and they're like sharing how, you know, I'm, I'm really kind of conflicted because I'm getting a little bit of pressure from my parents like, hey, are you going to use this degree or are you not going to use this degree? Um, and really what I found is I found a ton of peace sweeping the floors in this co-op. And relationship with people that I never would have been in relationship before. And I get to create and explore in ways that I never, like I've never been interested in this kind of stuff. And this is really fascinating. And in some levels, I'm using all of my biology here as I'm like working on really practical ways to pickle and to jar and to do all of this stuff. And as they're describing this, I'm thinking, my friend, you found your monastery. (laughs) You have found, at least for now, this place where you get to enter into human flourishing and enjoy life to its fullest in the ways that we were all created to enjoy life to its fullest. And I wonder what your monastery might be or how you might be able to transform your current situation into that. Because the reality is is that our lives are not lived in theories or ideas, but they're lived in bodies which means we can sit here and write out all the right answers to these sorts of questions all day long, but what we actually do determines so much of this. So, what I want to ask you, because this is how they put it in the book, and I think these are very scary questions. You want to know what you want? You want to know what you value? Not what you want to want, not what you want to value, but what you actually want and what you actually value? How do you spend your time? If you were to audit your calendar, where and on what are you spending your time? And they go through like a bunch of sub-questions. They're actually really helpful and terrifying. How do you spend your money? And to what are you giving your attention? For me, one of the most potent sub-questions under that last one, what are you giving your attention to? was they say, what's the first thing you look at when you wake up? What's the last thing you look at when you go to sleep? I'm like, oh, y'all need to get out of my business. <laughs> it's private, personal. But what a question. We really thought Jesus was serious. How would that change what we tried to gaze upon when we first woke up? what we tried to give our attention to as we fell asleep. Small, little thing that changes so much about everything, right? So what I want to invite you into is asking this question. This is something our our hub groups are going to explore this week. Um, If you're not in a hub, this is a great week to jump in. We've got a couple more weeks left until we take a little bit of a, a sabbatical for the Christmas season. And our hubs are going to be exploring these questions of busyness and, like, what really matters. But whether you're in a hub or not in a hub, like, you can still explore these questions also. And one of the things that I want to invite you into is 
this is, we're not going to trip and fall into a life of communion. I think that Jesus is inviting us into that. I think there is real invitation, but I also think that we have to be intentional about some of the things that we do and decide on. And so what counter habits could you begin to take to begin to foster a life of communion with God and with your neighbors, with one another? And here are some suggestions of things to think through as you consider this. So number one, there is a very real reality that you are a limited creature, which means if you say yes to something, you are saying no to something else. Right? And we see this in relationships. My saying yes to my wife is my saying no to every other woman in the world. And there's something really powerful about that and also something really healthily limiting about that. But if I say yes to doing this instead of doing that, then that means I'm saying no to a bunch of other options. So what are you saying yes to? What are you saying no to? What might you want to change? What might Jesus be inviting you to change? Number two, intentionality. We don't stumble into communion. We're not going to trip and fall over and be like, man, my life is just filled with deep communion with God. Why? Because the world is set up to chew you up and spit you out. The world is actively working against that, trying to tear you from communion. This also means that it will likely make communion hard, sometimes make communion costly. And I mean communion with God and also communion with other human beings. Sitting at Jesus' feet is going to cost you something. Jesus is really clear about this. Hey, look, if you want to follow me, pick up your crucifix and follow me. And it also might mean saying no to whatever our mammon is. Number three, last one, I promise. Communion requires space. Space for people, space for God, space to be present. Intimacy will not be efficient. Intimacy will not be efficient. There's a bunch of you like engineering types in here like, why not? I don't know. <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, my bad. <laughs> so this might mean creating space in your current life to experience God, carving out time and space, carving out stillness. And that can look a number of different ways. So this is not just me saying, hey, you need to get up early and have a quiet time. Like that's... This can go in so many different directions. But I also wonder if we should dig a little bit deeper here. Instead of just inviting God into our current lives, I wonder what it might mean for us to change what we're actually spending our lives on. Creating margin in our lives will mean that we have to then create boundaries. Because our saying yes to this is going to mean saying no to this. Um. We had a baby shower this yesterday and was so thankfully surrounded by a bunch of people who loved us and cared about us. But also, if you know me, going into a room filled with people where a lot of the attention at times will be put on me is not my jam. You picked the wrong profession, dude. Like, okay. <laughs> but so much of my own like anxiety is if I'm sitting here talking to this person, it means I can't be sitting here talking to this person. And yeah, that's kind of how conversation works. <laughs> But that is how communion works. It's how it operates. 
that if I am spending time here, it means I can't be spending time here. And so boundaries are going to happen at some level and in some way. So we'll have to think it through, how do we create boundaries with work, with time, with family, with friends, with our entertainment, with our phones, with our hobbies, whatever it is we're giving our time and money and attention to, how do we keep them in their proper place and their proper rhythms to foster a life of communion? Okay. None of this is intended to come across as like, man, if you don't do this, then you're a bad person. I do think that what Jesus is inviting us into is a very different way of life than the one that we will just naturally be living. And as hard as it is sometimes for us to like have to think about some of these things, what I hope that we hear is that Jesus has shown us that God is loving, God is gracious, and God is working towards our restoration regardless of what we do. And so the invitation here is not to save yourself. It's not to be on good, God's good side or God's bad side. It's no, 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 to cultivate an awareness of what God is already doing. To cultivate an awareness of God's presence in your life and to actually redeem some of the time that we have in this life by enjoying the things that matter. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.